Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. comment I get the most when people come into my office for the first time is they look around at the wall of bookshelves and then they ask me, have you read all these books? And my reply is usually something like, well, not all of these books are meant to be read cover to cover. That is, many of them are reference books that are used to reference things when I need them. But those books that are meant to be read cover to cover, I have read the majority of them. After all, otherwise... I mean, why would I have them? I was reading a novel over the weekend which involved a lawyer. And this particular lawyer had an office set up where behind his desk in the office was a fake wall of books. And he told another lawyer that had come into his office to visit him that it looked good on Zoom. That is, they were all fake. But he was projecting an image when he was meeting potential clients that these books were real and trying to impress them. Tracy's grandfather, on her father's side, worked the majority of his adult life for a denominational bookstore, not SBC, not Lifeway, but another denomination's bookstore. And so he had a large library himself. And part of the library that he had were several volumes with his name on the outside. That is, he had some bound books with titles, though I don't remember the titles, and his name on the binding. But if you were to pull those books down from the shelf, as I did, you would get a surprise. Because there was nothing inside. It was just blank pages. He hadn't written a book. He had just had access to book binding And so for fun, he had a couple of books with strange titles there on his shelf. He wasn't trying to deceive anybody. He was just trying to be funny. One more brief example on the various uses of books. Many of you, most of you, have an owner's manual for your car, probably in the glove compartment of your car, if you even realize that it's there. It tells you everything you need to know about owning and operating your vehicle. But of course, most of us have never read it. Many of us have referenced it from time to time, but only when there is something wrong with our car. There is some warning light on our dashboard that we are not familiar with, and so we go hunting in the owner's manual to try to figure out what's going on. It's the same way for many of us with our Bibles. Some of them are sitting around as props. They are on the bedside table. They are on the coffee table. And they look good in being there, but they are rarely opened. Others treat their Bibles like the owner's manual of our car. And that is we only go to it when we are having trouble in our lives and we want a quick fix to whatever has gone wrong. Last week, we started a series on our church mission statement, and you will recall it is there printed for you in the bulletin. And last week, we looked at that overriding statement that we as a church exist to proclaim God's word to make and mature believers. 
Now again, I want to remind you that if that is the church's mission statement and you are part of this church, that means it is your mission statement as well. That is, you have a part to play. You can't merely say it's the church's role to proclaim God's word because you are part of the church. Therefore, you have a part to play in proclaiming the word. So we're not using that phrase to mean what I do every Sunday morning in preaching. It is the task of every member to proclaim the word of God for the purpose of evangelism and discipleship. So that was last week. Now, under that mission statement, you notice that there are three further statements, action statements that tell us how we intend to go about fulfilling that mission statement, and we are going to look at the first of those today. And that first one says, teaching people to live. Likewise, it is the task of every member to teach people how to live according to God's word and God's will. So we are in Romans chapter 12 this morning, the first seven verses, and we are talking about living by the book. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, By testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, or individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving the one who teaches in his teaching. And then verse 8, I didn't put that on the screen. The one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. My title this morning, Living by the Book, is borrowed from a book by Howard Hendricks. It is a book that I've used multiple times through the years to teach people how to observe, interpret, and ultimately apply God's Word. That is, it is a book by Howard Hendricks that teaches us how to study the Bible. And so we want to see this morning that the Bible is indeed our manual for living. We as a church want to see transformed lives. That's what we talked about last week when we said we exist to proclaim God's word to make and mature believers. That is the process of transformation or what the Bible calls sanctification. So for that to happen, we must teach people to live. Now, I want to say at the outset that I'm no expert on that. I don't claim to have all of the answers for your complicated life on how to apply everything the Bible has to say specifically to your particular uh, thing. But I do know a resource that does. And it is not a resource that you have to go across town to Barnes & Noble to find. Neither do you have to go to McKay's because McKay's is always crowded anyway. 
You've probably got this resource in your home, and if you don't, we'll be happy to give you one so that you do have it in your home. And of course, you know the resource is called the Bible. And I want you to understand that the Bible is indeed our manual for living. Now, I'm confident so far you will not disagree with me. We might all agree in theory that the Bible is indeed our handbook for living, but the problem arises in the application of this truth. And so I want to make some rather obvious statements about this application that are necessary to make in spite of their obvious nature. First of all, if indeed the Bible is our manual for living, then we must know the manual. It's not going to help us if we say it's our manual, but we don't know what it says. We Baptists have sometimes been called a people of the book. But increasingly, it seems, especially in studies of statistics on this very topic, it is shown that we don't tend to know the book we claim to be a people of. David Wells is an author and seminary professor whose books I enjoy. He was asked many years ago, what is the greatest problem facing the church? And his answer was the increasing illiteracy of the people in the church when it comes to the Bible, and as a result, their inability to understand or discern when the culture is infringing upon the church. That is, if we don't know what the Bible says, then we certainly have a difficult time applying it. Paul is writing this book of Romans, which is the greatest treaty on salvation known to man. He has carefully and logically explained the nature and necessity of salvation to all who would take the time to read it. And by the time we get to chapter 12 that we are looking at this morning, many would call this the more practical portion of his letter. Paul does this often. That is, he spends the first half or so of a letter with doctrine or theology, and then he spends the latter half of that letter applying that theology to whatever church he is writing to. I, of course, I of course really don't want to call this the practical part because it implies that doctrine is not practical, but doctrine certainly is. But he begins the application part of this letter in chapter 12 with the word, therefore. Now, I know it's not the first word in your English versions, but it is the first word in the Greek version. And on the basis of the gospel message that he's already proclaimed and the mercies of God which he's bestowed on us, he then is pleading with us to live our lives in a certain manner. Now, obviously, we won't know how to live our lives in that manner unless we know the manual. If you've ever tried to put something together without reading the instructions, you have a sense of what I'm talking about. Maybe you did that this past Christmas. You say, I don't need the instructions, I can handle this, but when things don't go right, you become frustrated and angry and you start to wonder why you bought the product in the first place. But in your saner moments, you at least know that deep down you can't be mad at the manufacturer because you're the one that ignored the instructions that the manufacturer printed up for you. And yet that's exactly what we do with God. We get frustrated and angry at God when our life doesn't go as planned, and yet we've not had a steady diet of the manual for living that he's given us. Paul says in verse 2, do not be conformed to the world. We are not to live like the rest of the world. Instead, we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. 
And that can only happen with a steady diet of reading and knowing the Word of God. Now, that's not to say it's going to be easy. We don't find the ABCs of Christianity in the Bible. I mean, I know they're there, but I'm talking about we like to make it so simple, and yet we open the Bible and often realize that it's not as simple as we would like it to be. Yes, there are parts of the Bible that are easy to follow. There are some times when the Bible gives us lists. That is, here are some sins to avoid. Don't do these. Here are some attributes or things to do, and you ought to do these. And so those parts of the Bible are far easier for us to follow. But sometimes God's Word takes serious effort to dig down deep and unearth the truths that are found there and the principles that need to be applied to our specific situation. And in fact, that's why we can read it for our entire lives and still grow from it. This is not a novel that we read one time and set aside because we know the story. This is something we read over and over again and continue to grow from it. It takes learning doctrine, even if doctrine is a dirty word in our society. It shouldn't be because doctrine simply means a set of beliefs and it's important for us to know what we believe because invariably what we believe does indeed come out in the way we live our lives. As Scott announced earlier, we are starting our next life group session tonight. And the one we just concluded, my life group, had several discussions over the course of the study of the book that the book was hard to understand There were some in our group that had some criticism about the book because it was wordy and and they had difficulty following what the author was trying to say. And we were talking about that on one occasion during our study. And one of the guys in our group said this. He said, well, the Bible's hard to understand too, but we still keep on reading it. And I thought that was a really good comment. The Bible is not just an easy thing to pick up and understand totally. There are many difficult passages in here that scholars wrestle over, but that doesn't mean we set it aside because it's too hard to understand. It means that we keep reading it because we must know the manual, but having known the manual, and again, not perfectly, of course, but once we know the manual, we must also obey the manual. In other words, once we come to understand a certain portion of what the Bible says, the next step is to put it into practice. I mean, we are not interested in simply teaching you truth. Look again at that statement. We are teaching people to live. It's not just teaching people the truth, though we are doing that, but it is truth applied and obeyed to our lives. We are wanting transformation, not mere information. And for that to happen, we must put into practice the Word of God. And again, we see the comprehensive nature of this plan. We all have a part to play in teaching others. We all have a part to play in learning and applying and also then in teaching others. You've heard the old saying, I'm sure, if you give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day. But if you teach a man to fish, he will eat for a lifetime. So we believe in teaching people how to live according to God's word, but we take that a step further. We're trying to teach how to study and know the word of God so that we can continually apply the manual that God has given to us. 
And now for the rest of our time, I want to look at two general principles that I'm going to pull from the totality of the Bible. Obviously, we don't have time this morning to go through every aspect of your life. We don't have time to try to understand how the Bible applies to your career or your marriage or your parenting or your children or your retirement or any of those things. We do try to do that over the course of years of studying here at Beaver Dam, whether that's in the worship service or through other means. But generally speaking, I want to talk about two things this morning. The manual of living gives us a goal for living. Paul says that we are to present ourselves to God because this is our spiritual worship. To the Corinthian congregation, he said, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Now, that verse was in the context of the debate that was prevalent at the time as to what one could eat or drink and still be right with God. But the wider principle goes much further. Our life is to be lived for the glory of God. Now, we glorify God through worship. Now, I know when I say the word worship, you tend to confine that to what we're doing this morning. That is uh, the gathering of the body of Christ for a worship service. And that certainly is part of it, but it nowhere comes close to describing the whole. I'm talking about worship as a lifestyle. That is that we worship God and glorify God in every aspect of our life. And this is the overriding goal of the Christian life. The Westminster Confession of Faith asks in the very first question, what is the chief end of man? That is, what is the goal of man? And his answer in that confession is to enjoy God, or I'm sorry, backwards, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So even as you may have established some goals for your life in conjunction with the new year that has just begun, the overriding goal is not to make more money or to get a promotion or something like that. The overriding goal is to glorify God or worship God in all that we do. So let me say a few things about this goal of living found in our manual for living. Worship is a privilege for God's children. When we think of corporate worship, we might consider it a chore. I'm just being honest, a task that we need to do. It's Sunday morning, and what we do on Sunday morning is we go to church. But if we think about worship as a lifestyle, it might even burden us more because we think to ourselves, I can't possibly worship in everything and all that I do. That seems like a very high standard. But the truth is, worship is a privilege. The Bible invites Christians to worship God. Over and over in the Psalms and other portions of Scripture, we find the invitation to worship God. Now, we're tempted to view this in an egotistical light. After all, when it comes to humans, we generally detest those who are always seeking the applause and praise of others. But God is different and distinct. He seeks our worship not because he desperately needs to be reinforced and have his self-esteem built up. He seeks our worship because he alone is worthy of our worship. Think about that for a moment. The God who created everything, including you, the God who owns everything, the God who upholds everything by his word 
wants us to live every day in worship of him, and that is a privilege to be cherished. Secondly, worship is a response to God's word. Now, you hear the focus on the word of God again, right? I said last week that that was going to come up over and over again because everything we're doing is anchored in the word of God. We, ta- we called the ser- sermon last week anchored in truth. And the same is true of worship. Worship is anchored in truth. Now, that doesn't mean that anytime somebody worships that that is the case. People do worship false gods. People do worship gods of their own making or of their own imagination. And so just because someone is calling it worship doesn't mean it is genuine worship. But the kind of worship we are interested in is a response to God's word. And since it is a response to God's word, that means it is not based on feelings. Feelings have a way of dictating our actions. I don't feel like doing that. I don't feel like going today. How many people are not here today because they didn't feel like getting out of bed? Because it's a cold morning and they're calling for snow tomorrow. That shouldn't affect what you're doing today. But how many didn't want to get out of bed today because they didn't feel like it? And these kinds of statements tend to dictate a lot of what we do. And yet, we also know that it ought not to. I mean, if you say to one of your children, I want you to clean your room, and they say, I don't feel like it, what is your response? I'll tell you what my response is, or was, I don't have to do that anymore. My response always was the classic, I didn't ask how you feel. I asked you to do something, and so I expect you to do it. What if your teenager gets up on Tuesday morning, there's no school tomorrow, What if they get up on Tuesday morning and they say, I don't feel like going to school today? Say, I don't care. You're going. I mean, that's what you do on a school day. You go to school. That used to be the case with our work. We used to, as adults, go to work even when we didn't feel like it, but I'm not sure we can say that anymore. But when it comes to worship, why do we think we always have to feel like it? Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't. We certainly should have many times where we are eager and anticipatory as it pertains to worship, but there's also times, if we're just honest with ourselves, that we don't feel like. There's times when I don't feel like preaching, but I do it anyway when it's Sunday because I don't make my decisions based on how I feel. We make our decisions based on truth. And so as a response to the word of God, which is truth, we are to worship God whether we feel like it or not. But again, there are going to be many times when we do feel like it because we are empowered by God's spirit. It is a privilege for God's children that is a response to God's word, but ultimately it is empowered by God's spirit. I know we talk a lot about truth But in Jesus' classic confrontation with the woman at the well, it was not just truth, right? He said to the woman at the well, I want you to worship in spirit and in truth. But we must be present for the proper balance to occur. And both are equally dangerous. That is to fall too much on the spirit side or feelings or to fall too much on the truth side. So I'm not looking for your worship to be cold and sterile, that is, as long as I have the truth, then I can be just fine. I'm interested in us being full of life, empowered by the Spirit as a response to the truth that we've been taught. Paul told the Galatian church, if you live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. 
It is the Spirit that gives us new life in Christ, and now we are to walk by that same Spirit. So again, our goal is not the making of more money or the proper place to retire or to make sure we have better health. Those may have been on your New Year's resolutions list, and that's okay, but according to our manual for living, our ultimate goal for living is to glorify God or to worship God in all that we do. The second general principle I want to talk about is our attitude for living. We see this spelled out broadly in verses 3 through 7. Our attitude for living should be one of service. Now, we are generally more interested in other people serving us. If you're going out to eat lunch today, you expect your waiter or waitress to serve you. And you expect good service, especially if they want a tip. We want to go sometimes to spas or resorts where everything is about other people serving us, where we get exactly what we want when we want it. And that's okay from time to time. That used to be called a vacation. That is, a vacation was a a stepping aside from the normal everyday life for a week or two and be pampered, that is, other people serving us before we go back to our regular life. But now it seems that people sort of want to live on vacation, always being served by everybody else. But if we are going to return to living by the book, we must acknowledge that the attitude that we are to live by is an attitude of service, not of being served. So how does that start? Well, it starts by showing up for duty. Paul says, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. I am not talking here about showing up for church, although I certainly do believe that is very important. I am talking about showing up for service for Christ, both inside and outside the church. The point is, you can't have influence in the lives of other people unless you show up for service. So, for example... If you're on the list to serve in our nursery, that is, you're going to care for someone's baby so that they can come to the worship service and not worry about that, you've got to show up. You can't do that by Zoom. And the same applies to every other ministry in our church. If you are going to serve in a ministry in our church, then you must show up. That's a simple principle that is often violated. An attitude of service begins with presenting yourself for service, and every member of Beaver Dam ought to be serving in some capacity. Rather than a few people serving in many areas, there ought to be many people serving in a few areas. That way, no one gets burned out, and everyone gets blessed because they serve in the area that they are equipped for and that they are passionate about. I mean, Paul goes on to describe, this is one of his lists of gifts, that is, spiritual gifts given by the Spirit of God for us. It's a continual theme throughout the Bible, or especially the New Testament, that we've all been gifted, but we've all been gifted differently. That is, we are not all alike. We don't all have the same passion for a particular area of ministry because we don't all have the same talent, ability, and gifts. I mean, if we were all Sunday school teachers, there would be no one to teach, right? We would all be teachers, 
but nobody in our class to teach. And you could go again down the line of all the avenues of service we have. We have different avenues of service because we've been gifted differently. But showing up alone certainly won't sustain our service. That's why you need to understand that service must exert effort. Just because we are in the will of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, does not mean that things are going to be easy. People quit serving the Lord because they think that because God has gifted them and it's in the church, there's going to be this utopia of service and everything's going to go great. It doesn't always work that way. And you know why? Because when you serve, you're serving people. And people are sinful. And so service is hard. People may not always like your service. They may complain about what you're trying to do even when you're trying to help them. Some people might be downright antagonistic toward what you're doing, and if you don't understand that on the front end, you will never be persistent in your effort. You're going to quit when things get tough. Following Christ in service is never said in the Scriptures to be easy, but it is rewarding. And one of those rewards of service is my next point. This attitude that we are to display is an attitude of humility. Serving others deflates our ego and builds up our empathy for them at the same time. Paul said elsewhere of Jesus that he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. And Jesus' humility is on full display for us at Calvary. He, being equal to God, did not regard that equality as something to be grasped, but rather he humbled himself and suffered and died for us. And that is our example, because along the way of our lives, we are going to experience suffering as well as we continue to serve. I mean, we live in a selfish society. We are consistently told that we must look out for ourselves because no one else is going to. Most of the advertising or marketing that we are subjected to is largely in this realm as well of personal indulgence. If you don't have it, get it. If you didn't get what you want for Christmas, most of us can go out and get it on our own. Within reason, of course. And we even see this in the church. Worship is now a spectator sport where the crowd is demanding better and better worship and certainly complaining about the worship that they are getting at the moment. We've managed to make everything revolve around us, and yet we're still not happy and satisfied. And maybe that's because we were never meant for everything to revolve around us. Life was meant for the believer to be lived in sacrificial service for our king. That message pulsates throughout Scripture, that it's not about me. It's about me serving Christ, and in serving Christ, I am, you are serving others. So as you see in this element of the mission statement, we all have two parts to play. There is the teaching element. The church has a responsibility to teach people how to live in accordance with God's will and God's word. And that's why we emphasize studying and knowing the manual for living. 
But even if you're not in an official position of teaching here at Beaver Dam, you are still to teach. As parents, we teach our children. As grandparents, we teach our grandchildren. As citizens of this community, we teach and live in such a way that we might show others that we are followers of Christ. So in some sense, we are all teachers, and yet we are also all students, We all have more to learn from one another. And then also, we are all practitioners. That that means as students, we are to put into practice the things we are learning so that we are living our lives more effectively. I mean, it's sad to see the lives of believers falling apart because they're making poor decisions or decisions they don't even know are poor decisions because they don't know the manual that God has given us. They're making decisions that are diametrically opposed to what God has already said and they either don't know it or they're actively disobeying what they do know and then wondering why their lives are falling apart. So I'm simply saying to us this morning, we do have a manual for living and that manual is given to us by the very God who created us and wants us to live an abundant and eternal life. So it behooves us to know what that manual says and to live according to the goal and the attitude it portrays for us. Paul sums it up very clearly. I have been crucified with Christ. And therefore, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ loves you and gave himself for you. And now it is your responsibility to live by applying his manual of living to the goal and attitude he gives us for life. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for your revelation. Often we take that for granted, but you have given us your word so that we might not only know you, but know how you want us to live our lives. And we know that because you are a good and loving God, the way you want us to live our lives is for our good. So I pray that we would value your manual, know it, apply it, and see within it the attitude and goal for which we ought to live. May we indeed be people of the book, not just in name, but in practice. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing. Now, if it does snow tomorrow, and you do realize that they're wrong sometime, right? They're wrong a lot, yeah. But if it does snow tomorrow, you're gonna have some extra time, as I will, on your hands, so use some of it to read the word of God. And you might start with Psalm 119, which is a psalm about the Word of God. And so a couple of verses from there will serve as our benediction. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You are dismissed.